to episode 38 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. 2022 has been designated Scotland's Year of Stories, celebrating the stories that reflect who we are and shape how others see us. We thought that would be an opportunity to dig into the rich tradition of whiskey storytelling. We've been fortunate enough to gather contributions from two Scottish musicians, storytellers and whisky lovers. First up is Hamish Napier. Hamish is a musician from Strathspey, the heart of Scotland's whisky country. He's also one of the storytellers for Badenoch Heritage, which is a community group that promotes tourism in the area through its rich cultural heritage, including its history of whisky production. Hamish has kindly provided us with two stories from the Badenoch The Storylands Project, which are all available from badenochstorylands.com. That's where you can also download the Storylands app to unlock the area's fascinating history, local stories and inspiring music. Hamish's first story is, appropriately enough, about the history of illicit whisky across Badenoch with Hamish also providing the music. Islanders have been making their own spirits since time immemorial. There are records of monks in the 15th century distilling, but it's thought that it had been going on for centuries before that. To make Scotch whisky, you need barley, water and yeast. Back in the old days, before distilleries became the large industrial buildings they are now, the whisky making operations were quite small scale. You needed the best barley you can get good, pure, soft Highland water and distiller's yeast and various pieces of apparatus. And these included something to mill the malted barley down into flour. You also needed a mash tun, which is basically a large vessel for mixing the ground malt. Sometimes just an old bathtub was used. A good going fire with plenty of fuel that you could control the temperature of easily. Also, some more tuns for the fermenting process. And of course, you need the pot still itself, and also a contraption affectionately known as the Yui with the crooked horn. This was the name for the condensing coil or worm tub that looked a wee bit like a corkscrewing horn of a sheep. The Yui was that all-important vessel at the end for collecting the precious spirit. The spirit was then put inside an oak cask or a wine anchor to mature it for a while, and then it would take on a hint of the flavours of the cask's previous contents. The longer you left it, months, years even, the more interesting results you seem to get. 
it became an art form. You need to have years of experience to get it just right. Highlanders call it Ushkebehe, which is Gaelic for water of life. The word Ushke gradually became Uski and eventually Whiskey. You sometimes hear other expressions like a dram of the mountain dew or a nip of the good stuff or a bottle of the best or a wee drappy oat, a wee drop of it. The Scottish people's fondness for whisky has often been poured forth in song, as you'll hear in this funny Gaelic song composed by John MacDonald from Garva, Lagan in Bédnach. It's sung here by Seamus Grant of Rothiemurkis. Apparently, John MacDonald's descendants from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, in Canada, say that he actually ended up in the prison in Inverness for making whisky at some point in his life. The song could have been lost to us completely had it not been written down by the Reverend Thomas Sinton in his amazing book, The Poetry of Badenoch, from 1906. The song lyrics talk of the people celebrating a wedding and it mentions the bride, but the bride is actually a whisky still and the groom is, well, much enamoured by his new life companion. Then the bysha o he, hail you, hail yo, sheep and o gachultain, spin a soin licht a gall. and he, pyarlum heen a vikal, clang and garav, guchek fin a hokig, mean sheen fofron. Though you are very fond of tea, I myself prefer to be drinking a glass of the smooth, strong stuff which would lift my spirits from sadness. Whiskey was, and always will be, a dearly loved Scottish treasure. During the old statistical account of Scotland in 1792, a local minister of the parish of Alvey contributed the following. Uh, The people are much addicted to drinking of whiskey. At the public meetings, such as burials, etc., squabbles are frequent, their fondness of spirits is owing to the easy access to it. There being no less than 13 houses in the parish where drams are sold without a county or excise licence, all to the very great prejudice of the purse, constitution and morals of the natives. The government needed to get this under control. The Highlanders had a growing whisky economy and it needed to be taxed and controlled. The civil services branch of the Inland Revenue had many excisemen searching up and down the length and breadth of the highlands and islands for any place that might contain illicit whisky stills and stashes, so houses, barns, caves and hidden mountain bothies. But the government kept setting an excise duty that was unreasonably high, particularly during wartime, such as the Napoleonic Wars. This only encouraged an underground industry to develop, a network of organised criminals trading in illegal whisky all over the highlands. They were known as smugglers. And their smuggling bothies were up the backwoods of wee glens amongst the dense juniper and broom bushes. In these concealed locations, the smoke of their fires could not be seen from afar. And there was plenty of mountain peat about to flavour the smoke while drying out the grains but they were always keeping a careful watch out for the excisemen. Often a whole township, men, women, children and the elderly, would be keeping an eye out for the gaugers and warn the distillers when the men were coming. 
or find ingenious ways to distract or outsmart the officers. If you had a license to distill whisky, then there was nothing to worry about. The exciseman was usually called a gauger because he used to gauge the strength of the spirit using glass balls, almost like a Galileo's thermometer. He often wisely went about with a partner and was sometimes armed. At times, they would need to do a bust with a large squad of officers. Any perpetrators could have their equipment destroyed on the spot. The whisky would be taken away as evidence. I wonder where it went afterwards. Very occasionally they could be persuaded to be lenient, but most of the time the excisemen were resolute in their duties. Anyone who was brave or stupid enough to oppose these government officers would have been jailed or fined severely. But there was another side to the excisemen. Touring around the countryside and staying in taverns or people's homes meant that the officers could talk with and get to know a great deal of the Highland people. They encountered many poems, songs and stories and some excisemen collected these. There are a number of famous people who worked as excisemen including the writer Neil M. Gunn, that's the author of The Silver Darlings and Robert Burns himself who is reputed to have turned a blind eye from time to time in exchange for people's favourite tunes and songs. Alexander Archibald Carmichael, one of Scotland's most dedicated folklorists, collected many a precious song and tale during his duties as an exciseman in the Western Isles. If it weren't for him, many of the Gaelic songs would have been completely lost to us. But the life of an exciseman was not always a happy one. As you can imagine, they weren't exactly given a warm welcome by suspicious locals. Threats were common, but thankfully, physical assaults were rare. The smugglers were forever trying to outwit the gaugers, and there are many stories like this recorded throughout the highlands and islands, and Bednach has a fair few to tell. Donald Macpherson and his wife Anne and sister Sophia of Newton Moor were caught in possession of illicit whisky by the excisemen. The officers must have had a tip-off from one of the locals. They found one anchor of whisky, a keg of roughly 10 gallons, on the moor of Strone by Newton Moor, by the side of a wee loch there, and another in Donald Macpherson's barn nearby. The Macphersons actually tried to stop the two excisemen from seizing the kegs. They were arrested. At their trial in Inverness in April 1823, Donald, Anne and Sophia were questioned in Gaelic. The Inverness Journal reported... The female prisoners insisted that the excise officers should only take away one keg. The officers would not agree to this. The male prisoner said they should have neither keg and immediately carried away one keg and came back again for the other. The officers did not oppose him, fearing it would be in vain, as a crowd, principally composed of women, were at hand. In the end, each were sentenced to one month's imprisonment for possession of around 20 gallons of illegal whisky. That's around 120 bottles. Mrs Bella Millen of Middleton, Lagan, born in 1889, said that there were a few folk in her area at it too. My great-grandfather used to brew the beer for the Clooney's. He was the brewer for the ale, for the dinner and for everything else. He was making whisky up at Lugbui in the Bulgown peat moss. Someone reported him to the excise officers and Cleany McPherson heard that he was reported. He sent word along to my great-grandfather to hide all the instruments for making the whisky. And he went along the road from Cluny Castle to meet the excise men and wanted them to go up to see the castle and delay them from getting to my great-grandfather. 
The excise men would not come, would not go up to see the castle, as they wanted to catch my great-grandfather. When they went up to my great-grandfather, he had all the instruments hid except the black pot. The excise men took a dirk from his side and started to break the pot. But my great-grandfather took the dirk from him, and there was an argument there, with the result that my great-grandfather was fined. McClooney pled for him, and he wasn't jailed. And the gaugers had their hands full over the hill in Loch Aber too. Another lagging local, John MacDonald, used to say, These gaugers happened upon two lads making whiskey from Leenachan near Spean Bridge. They had a still, an illicit bothy as they call it, and the gaugers confiscated the keg. This was too bad for the lads as they took the keg away. The gaugers went into a tavern with it. They went up to the topmost chamber along with the keg. But the lads had their close friends at the tavern, and they knew exactly where they were in the room. So what did they get but a chisel, and made a hole through the top of the ceiling, and they landed right at the barrel, and drilled a hole in it. They got every drop in the barrel which came down, and they decanted it into other jars. They made off with it. That was great. The gaugers thought that everything was well. They were going to take the keg along with the men. They were going to condemn them. When they set off in the morning, they grabbed the keg, only to find it was an empty shell. They were utterly astounded that this could have happened. They couldn't understand it, until they turned the barrel upside down and saw the hole at its bottom. And thus they had no evidence that these were the men who'd been making the whiskey. They'd no evidence whatsoever, as the barrel was now empty. Then all they could do was give the lads their leave to go free. Bella Millen talked of a very close call with the excisemen. My grandmother had the village shop at Belgowan, and she used to keep a wee drop of whisky for the old folk. There was a local butcher who used to carry the whisky up for her. And one very hot day, he was coming along the Canusi Road and overtook two excisemen walking up to Lagan. They asked him for a lift as the day was so hot. He told them he couldn't take them into the van because it was fully loaded but he was afraid to take them up because he had the jar of whisky for my grandmother to bring it up to Bulgowan. So he said to them, Oh well, I'll take your jackets and your vests as you're so warm. And they replied, Oh, would you not be better just taking ourselves then? Because we're very tired. So he took them up and he didn't know what to do because there was himself sitting on a jar of whisky for the whole time in case they would know what he had. So he arrived at Bulgowan with the exercise men they went into my grandmother's as they usually did, and they had a glass of whiskey and some oat cakes and homemade cheese. But they never knew that she was selling the whiskey, and all the time the butcher was sitting on the whiskey, they were none the wiser, so they never found out about it. Donald MacDonald of Lagan used to say, I heard plenty about people making whiskey. They were making it all right. I think I heard my father speaking about it. The gauger came in once, and there was the wife. I don't know whether it would have been my grandmother or not. If not, it would have been some other old woman that was in the house, and she had a young child. She sat at the fire with the child, and the piggy, the keg, was put in below the old wife. When the gauger came, he didn't see it. I believe I did hear about an old woman with the keg dressed up as a child, and singing to it. There are even stories of women faking child labour to distract the exciseman from doing his duty. Mrs Millen recalls, Was it not somewhere here that a woman laid in bed and pretended she was going to have a child when the excisemen came? They used to smuggle the whisky, and supposedly it was splendid. 
My father said it was great stuff. Honey ale, wonderful. They should not have been at them for making whiskey. I think they were very clever, don't you? And they had every right to make it. Mary McPherson, who lived in Strathdown, just over the Monalia Hills from Badenoch, was milking her cows at Wood End one day, when word of the excisemen in the area spread up the glen. Her father arrived with a cartload of peats. Concealed among all the peat was a pot of the good stuff. Quick, Mary, put it under your stool. The gauges will be here any minute. They placed the keg under the milking stool and Mary sat back down. And so it was hidden under her long dress, you see. No sooner did she do so, but the gaugers came galloping up to the shed. They stormed about the place looking underneath this and that. Well, they found nothing, and they declined Mary's offer of a wee drink. Of milk, of course. And then the gaugers galloped off to search other properties, further up the Findhorn. It wasn't just whisky that the excisemen had to check licences for. There were other things too. James McIntosh of Lagan remembers. Well, there was an exciseman here and he wasn't very well liked. He wasn't liked at all. Everyone was against him. He was always asking if he met anyone, have you a dog? Have you a licence for your dog? They got fed up with him after a while. Well, he met this local and said to him, anybody about here that has dogs that's not taking a licence for them? The man said, aye, there's an old woman about half a mile away. Who is she? Oh, just go up there. There's the road. So off up he went and knocked at the door. The old woman came out. Have you a dog? Oh, yes, I have two, actually. Well, I want to see them. Come away in. She took him into the room and said, There's my two dogs on the mantelpiece. And what a bonny pair of porcelain wally dugs they were, too. Two of Hamish's whiskey stories from Badenoch, he takes us on a journey to Speyside Distillery, across to Dalquini, and finally to meet the remarkable Evan Katanach, the legendary whiskey distiller and ambassador from Kinyusi, who died back in 2016. Nowadays, all of the spirit distilled in Badenich is legal at licensed distilleries. The majority of Speyside whisky distilleries are found further down the River Spey in Straths Bay, Bampshire and Murray. But in Badenich, it's a case of quality, not quantity, for there are two world-class whisky distilleries, Dalwhinnie and the Speyside Distillery. The Speyside Distillery is located at Tromi Mills in Remuish on the back road between Ruthven and Loch Inch. 
it's one of the smallest family-run distilleries in the Highlands. It was a croft and barley mill for over 300 years. In 1965, the mill closed its doors for business and the grand mill wheel that had served the community for so many generations stopped turning. But over the next 25 years, it was converted into a beautiful new single malt distillery. The distillery makes use of the original mill and draws its water from the River Tromi using the old mill lade, the man-made water channel which drove the water wheel. Speyside Distillery started producing spirit on Christmas Day in 1990. Dalhwini Distillery is one of the first things you see as you come north on the A9, up and over the Dromochter Pass and drop down into Badenoch. It's an attractive cluster of tall white buildings with two very distinctive lacquered copper pagodas on the roof. It's the highest distillery in Britain at 1,164 feet above sea level. Dromochter means high ridge in Gaelic. Surrounded by mountains and moorlands, the distillery is also an official weather station. There's plenty of cold water to supply the distillery. It comes from a high hidden loch called Lochan Nitter Uwain and tumbles down a mountain burn called Altentluich, the burn of the deep pool. The Lochan isn't owned by Dalhwini Distillery, but they have an agreement to give the landowner 16 bottles of the good stuff every year in exchange for the use of the loch. We're not quite sure what Dalhwini means in Gaelic. Some say it's the meeting place because it has a junction of routes used by the cattle drovers of old. A place for them to stop over for the night after coming through Badenich and before heading south to sell their cattle at the big markets of Creef and Falkirk. But Dalhwini could also mean Dale of Champions or Meadow of Warriors. The flat moor was seen by clans as suitably remote and neutral ground for pitched battles. Many a dispute between neighbouring clans was resolved there, between McCall's and McPherson's, Lochiel and Athol, and several skirmishes involving the clan Hatton. Dalwhinnie Distillery was founded in 1897, but in 1934 someone knocked over a lamp and the whole distillery went up in flames. But it was rebuilt and back up and running again after four years. The distillery workers were all entitled to get a dram each day at noon. And according to a retired steam train driver, Jimmy Gray from Aviemore, it wasn't always just folk from the distillery in the dram queue. The Highland Railway mainline runs right by the distillery and there's sidings there for collections and deliveries. The engine driver and fireman of the goods train would often try to perfectly time their arrival at the distillery in order to join the queue for the Mountain Dew. Badenich also has some modern gin distilleries, one at Inchriach and another at Kinrara, and in Newton Moor they make a whisky liqueur called Stag's Breath. And in the 1830s there were plans for a distillery just west of Newton Moor, but it fell through. Canusi's attempt at a whisky distillery was also short-lived, lasting for little over a decade. It was actually called Speyside Distillery, not to be confused with the existing distillery at Tromi Mills. Huge buildings with warehouses were built, as well as a railway spur that transported the goods onto the Highland mainline. The distillery was located behind where the Duke of Gordon Hotel is now. Being just off the main street and so near to the school, inevitably many locals complained bitterly about the smell and the smoke from the distillery, and problems with barley and water and bad management ultimately led to its closure. 
the building was demolished and the stone used to help build the Great North Road. The distillery, ultimately, was a big business failure. It cost the modern equivalent of three million to make and only sold for 3% of its cost. One of Badenich's biggest ever million-dollar whisky exports wasn't a single malt, but a single man, Evan Katenich. Born and bred in Canusi, he served four years in the Navy and returned to work on the family farm at Kero. A Badenich man through and through, he played shinty for Canusi's Kamenich Cup-winning team of 1961. Standing at over six feet tall, he was a big presence and he became one of the giants of the Scottish whisky industry. He started with a training job at Balmenich Whisky Distillery, further down the Spey at Cromdale, and would go on to work in 14 other distilleries throughout Scotland. Towie Moore, Glentochers, Aberfeldy, Talisker, Muir of Ord, Dalyuan, Milburn, Benromach, St Magdalene, Lagavulin, and then back to Badenich to manage Dalwini, then on to Rosebank, Coila, Colburn, Craganmore, and finally finishing up at Cardew. He was a distillery manager there for 10 years and was a highly skilled whisky noser. This was a crucial job, overseeing the quality of hundreds of thousands of bottles of single malt whisky every year. In the early stages of the production process, a single scent of 127 proof whisky was enough for a noser like Evan to tell if a batch was going to be up to scratch or not. Eventually, he became a brand ambassador that toured around the world promoting Scotch whisky. He visited 200 cities and over 40 different countries. He talked to distributors and salespeople, trainees, journalists and whisky enthusiasts and he was always happy to talk about Scotland, Scottish people and Scotch. Evan Catanach always wore the kilt and was well known for his loud, contagious laugh and his charismatic rendition of Address to the Haggis at Burns Suppers. He may well have hosted the first ever single malt whisky dinner in the United States. Whenever he travelled abroad, his managers at Johnny Walker had his nose insured for a million dollars through a major London insurance company. He claimed there was nothing particularly special about the nose itself. It's not long, not narrow and not hooked. It's just a fairly ordinary sort, he used to say. Now, colds and flu are the whisky noser's nightmare, but Evan claimed he always had the very best solution to hand, a quick whiff of whisky. He used to say his favourite thing about working in whisky was the people, because it's very much a craft business and it's a bit craftsman. It's made by Scottish people in little communities that love what they do. They love their communities and they love their area. But his heart was in the distilleries themselves, the creation of the whisky, the sights, smells and sounds of the whisky. And Evan once tried to describe what it was actually like working in a distillery and going to work there every morning. Oh yeah, you open the doors in the still house and there's these gleaming copper pots and the smell and the sound of a whisky. It's just magical, really. Everywhere you go in a distillery, there's a different smell. When I started in the maltings, you got that barley smell when it came into the malt barns and then you soaked it and then you'd dry it out over a peat fire and then the, the mashing and the fermentation and then into the still house, and you just listen to the stills and they're all bubbling away there. It's just like an orchestra, really, because you can hear all these wonderful sounds. 
And then there's all these wonderful smells and you walk out into the outside and it's beautiful fresh air right on the side of the spay. There's softness and that wood smell, that country smell. It's the smell of Scotland, really. That was Hamish Napier with two stories from Badenoch, the Storylands project. You can find out much more and listen to more stories from the region by visiting badenochstorylands.com. And that's where you can also download the Storylands app to delve into much more about the area's history, local stories and music. Now, from Speyside we travel to Isla for this tale told by Whiskey Bard, musician, and SMWS Tasting Panel Chair Robin Lang, with music supplied by Robin himself. Here's Robin with the tale of the White Horse. The Story of the White Horse This is a tale found in Tales of the West Highlands collected by John Francis Campbell of Isla. Campbell says, The story was collected about 150 years ago from an old man of 80 called Hugh Macandore. He in turn got it from a man called Angus Gruma, frowning Angus, who was himself the subject of many queer tales. The story of the widow and her three daughters is an international folk tale and many variations are found in Scotland. Sometimes the horse is black or grey or other details are different. It's no surprise that the Isla version has a wee injection of whisky into it. Italo Calvino has a version of it in his book Italian Folk Tales called The Three Chicory Gatherers. In that version, instead of a horse, there is a dragon which the third sister outwits by getting him drunk. The Widow and Her Three Daughters There was once a widow who had three beautiful daughters. The family had very little money, only what they could earn from spinning, and certainly all four were competent spinners. They also had a kale yard or croft garden for growing food. Well, it happened that a white horse started coming to the garden and munching on the kale. The eldest daughter went out to shoo the beast away. She took the distaff from her spinning wheel and she slapped the horse on its rump. But suddenly she found that the distaff had stuck fast, both to the horse and to her hand. So when the horse galloped off, she was dragged along behind until eventually they came to a castle. And as soon as they reached the castle... The horse turned into a man, quite a good-looking fellow, who told her he was the son of the king. 
She was very well looked after, provided with a sumptuous meal and a lovely room with a really comfortable bed. Next morning he told her he had to go hunting with his father, but that when he returned they should have dinner together and make plans for their wedding. He gave her the keys to the castle and told her she could have the freedom of the place, but he pointed out one room that she was not to enter under any circumstances. After he left, she started looking into all the castle rooms and every one seemed finer and grander than the one before. When she came at last to the forbidden room, she hesitated. But her curiosity was great, and she thought what harm could there be in just having a wee peek? She opened the door and started to step inside, but suddenly gasped in horror, for the room was full of dead women, and there was blood everywhere. Her foot, which had entered the room, was now red, almost up to the ankle. She quickly closed the door, locked it, and then tried to clean her foot, but the blood would not come off. Just then, a little grey cat came by and asked her for a drop of milk. Shoo, you stupid beast, she said. How can I take care of you when I am in such a predicament? When the king's son came home, he asked her if she had been a good woman while he was gone. Oh, yes, she said. But he demanded to see her feet. When he saw the blood, he quickly drew his sharp, shining sword and with one stroke chopped off her head. The next day, the white horse was back at the kale yard, and this time the middle sister went out with her distaff and whacked the horse to chase it away. Again the distaff stuck to the horse and she was dragged off to the castle. Exactly the same thing happened, except that when she opened the forbidden door it was even worse because her own sister was inside, head separated from the body. She slammed the door on the awful scene and gasped for breath, heart pounding like a drum. Just like the first sister, she spurned the little grey cat and eventually suffered the same fate at the hands of the king's son. The day after that, the white horse was back, and this time the youngest sister went out, and she also ended up in the castle. Exactly the same events unfolded, but the youngest sister, being of a kinder disposition, fetched some milk for the wee grey cat. The cat drank some of the milk, and then began to lick the youngest sister's foot, removing all the blood. That night, the king's son, delighted to have found a trustworthy woman at last, made plans for the wedding to take place within a few days. The following day, when he went hunting again, the wee grey cat came round and spoke to the woman, saying, Even if you wed him, it will not last long. Here is what you have to do if you want to live and to see your sisters alive again. Go back into the forbidden room. On a shelf at the back of the room is a bottle of golden liquid. That is the water of life. Take some of the liquid and rub it on your sister's lips. Then the little cat gave the youngest sister some other instructions, which she followed well, and this is what happened. 
The next three days she spent going round the castle, apparently cleaning and sorting out her new home. Each day she chose a large chest and asked him to have it sent back to her mother's cottage in the morning, saying that the things inside would be more used to a poor old widow on her own than to a king's son and his new wife. But each day she revived a sister with the water of life and put her in the chest, which was then sent home. On the third day, she hid in the chest herself and took the wee grey cat with her. When the king's son discovered that she had gone, he flew into a rage and raced to the widow's cottage. When he charged in at the door, the wee grey cat tripped him up and the youngest sister cut off his head with a sword that had belonged to her father. The cat persuaded her, however, to rub the water of life on the lips of the king's son, and as soon as she did so, he came back to life not as the hard-hearted murderer, but as himself, a handsome, refined and charming prince who had been under an evil spell. The grey cat also had a lick of the water of life and resumed her form as his beautiful sister, the young princess. The youngest daughter of the widow and the handsome prince were married and everyone lived happily ever after in the castle, making lots of the fabled water of life under the sign of the white horse and that became one of the most popular whiskies on Isla, Lagavulin, which was still known as the White Horse Distillery not that long ago. Finally, Robin heads to the Highlands for this tale of the Dalmore, King Alexander III, and why the royal stag came to adorn that distillery's bottlings. a bit of a story that lies behind a lovely whisky called the Dalmore, King Alexander III. In 1296, England invaded Scotland in an attempt to impose their rule. Scotland resisted and thus began the Wars of Independence, and all the great stories of how William Wallace and Robert the Bruce fought back against a much larger and wealthier England and managed to retain Scottish sovereignty for centuries to come, until 1707, but that is another story. How did it come about that Edward I, also known as Longshanks and as the Hammer of the Scots, took a fancy to swallowing up Scotland in the first place? Well, that story can be traced back to a whisky-drinking session ten years earlier in Edinburgh Castle. On that occasion... King Alexander III was in a mood for celebrating. To be fair, his reign so far had been a mixed bag, some good things, 
For example, he had defeated Hakon of Norway at the Battle of Largs in 1263, with the fortuitous help of a violent storm which wrecked a number of Hakon's ships. This gave him mastery of the Western Isles, including Isla, where all the best whisky was made. Some said this was actually the main reason for Alexander wanting to chase the Vikings out of Scotland in the first place. Hakon retreated to Orkney, where he died shortly after, from drinking too much Highland Park. The Vikings were used to mead and didn't know how to handle cask-strength single malt. In fact, Norway managed to hold on to Orkney for another 200 years, but they were always afraid of drinking malt whisky because of what had happened to Hakon, so the Orcadians had to drink all the whisky themselves, though they did export a lot to Edinburgh, as Orkney and Lothian had previously been part of the same kingdom back in the Arthurian days under the rule of King Lot. In medieval times, the most important thing for any king to achieve was a male heir, and Alexander was no exception to this rule. His first marriage was to the English princess Margaret, a common name in those days, as we will find out. She was the daughter of Henry III. They married in 1251, when he was 10 and she was 11. For whatever reason, it'd be better not to speculate, it took 10 years before Margaret gave birth to their first child, also called Margaret. All fine and good, but not a boy. Then they did manage to have a son, Alexander, in 1264, and then another, David, in 1272. Unfortunately, all of Alexander's children died before he did. A mixed bag, right enough. In fact, his wife also predeceased him in 1275, and so for ten years, Alexander was a widower and a busy single-parent father. According to the Lanarkost Chronicle, however, he was still active in his pursuit of women, but he had no interest in marrying. Quote, he used never to forbear on account of season nor storm, nor for perils of flood or rocky cliffs, but would visit none too creditably, nuns or matrons, virgins or widows, as the fancy seized him, sometimes in disguise. End of quote. For this kind of behaviour he was widely known as Randy Sandy. Once his children were all dead, however, he had to find another wife and get some more heirs to carry on the line. In 1285, he married a young noblewoman from France who was half his age, Yolande de Dreux. She was a beauty. And so we come to the whisky-drinking session in Edinburgh Castle. Alexander had business to do with his advisers, which had taken most of the day, and as was customary, out came the bottles of Isla Malt. After a good few hours carousing, however, he decided to go home. Randy Sandy had remembered that it was Yolanda's birthday the next day, so he wanted to give her something special, and there was all that tedious business of producing an heir. But she was in Fife, waiting for her man at a place called Kinghorn, not making this up. His advisers advised him, well that's what they were paid for, not to go as the weather was stormy, but he wouldn't listen. He rode to Dalmeny and insisted that the ferryman take him over to Fife despite the stormy weather. Then he headed off on horseback along the shore, once again not put off by the perils of flood or rocky cliffs. Unfortunately, in his drunken state, he fell asleep at the rains, 
tumbled off his horse and cracked his head on a stone. End of Alexander III. The kingdom was in a state. His oldest daughter, Margaret, had married the King of Norway before she died, of course, and they had a daughter also called Margaret. Margaret, the mother, was Queen of Norway but was called the Maid of Scotland. The daughter, Margaret, was the only heir to the Scottish throne at this time, but she was known as the Maid of Norway. She was only about three years old when she was eventually sent to Scotland to be crowned, but sadly, she also died in Orkney. Probably not of drinking Orkney single malt like her great-grandfather, Hakon. So Scotland had no heir. Various families began to jostle for position and Edward I thought he would muscle in, hence the Wars of Independence, all because Randy Sandy fell off his horse in a drunken state after too much whisky. Perhaps less well known is that Sandy had previous. This was not the first time he had fallen off his horse on account of too much drink. A few years previously, in 1263, King Alexander was out hunting the royal stag, as was customary with kings of Scotland in those days, and as usual it turned into a merry outing, an excuse for a bunch of nobles to get together in the forest and have a good natter about affairs of state and drink copious amounts of aqua vitae away from the disapproving eyes of their wives. The king and a few others were pursuing a large stag through the woods. The stag found itself cornered and quickly turned. Alexander, pished as a fart, tried to control his horse but fell to the ground, right in the path of the roaring, charging beast. The stag was about to poke the king in a sensitive area with its sharpest point when up rode Colin Fitzgerald of Contail, chief of the clan Mackenzie. Fitzgerald bravely leapt from his horse and speared the stag right through the forehead. The stag went cross-eyed and tongue lolling from its mouth collapsed giddily to the ground, more or less exactly the same as the king had done seconds earlier. This famous adventure was captured in a very large painting by Benjamin West, which now hangs in the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh. Its full title is Alexander III of Scotland Rescued from the Fury of a Stag by the Intrepidity of Colin Fitzgerald. Mackenzie was the hero of the day, and to celebrate his bravery and the fact that the king had survived a serious threat to his life, the hip flasks came out again and there was all the usual dramming and backslapping and drunken hugging. And so Alexander is attributed with having invented the stag party. He also rewarded Mackenzie by giving him the right to have the royal stag emblem on his family crest. A very special honour, as previously only the royal family could show this. Personally, I think if you save the king's life, you should get at least a massive great castle and a few quid every year forever, but that's just me. Ever since then, the Mackenzie clan proudly displays a 12-pointer royal stag on their crest, often shown with a wound on its forehead. The Mackenzie family acquired Dalmore Distillery in 1867 and bottles of their single malt proudly display the crest. Indeed, one of their expressions is called King Alexander III, 
and tests. Wonderful. Reminding us of the Mackenzie motto, Luceo non uro, I shine not burn. All of this to remember a king of Scotland who had a tendency to fall off his horse after drinking too much whisky. Find Robin's collections of whisky stories in his books, such as Whisky Legends of Isla and The Whisky River about the distilleries of Speyside, as well as his many whisky themed albums at robinlang.com. We hope you enjoyed these whisky stories, and you can always find more at Unfiltered, the members' magazine of the Scotch Malt Whisky Society at smws.com. That's it for this episode of Whisky Talk. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.